0: All right. Welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is March 22nd, the year of our Lord, 2020. We are still here as long as we can be here. Another essential personnel only edition of Late Kick, but we are jam-packed. In fact, we're going to have to cram this one into the allotted time tonight. I'm going to talk some about Nick Saban in Alabama and how they're probably you know, in a little bit more fortuitous a position maybe right now relative to what the position they're normally in is as we go into an off season, Make more sense of that momentarily. Also, going to hit the state of Florida, just work our way all the way up 95, everywhere in between Miami, Florida State, Florida, is anyone positioned to take over that state or take control of things? And I'm going to tell you why it matters from the perspective of Georgia, really the entire SEC, the entire Big Ten, Clemson, the entire ACC, and really college football in general. In fact, if you're one of those folks who longs for parity in the sport and you long for a November where 15 teams are still in the national championship race, I would tell you keep dreaming. But it is possible... But to have that happen, someone needs to take control in the state of Florida. I'm going to make more sense out of that, too. Also, the other night, we had a Q&A. Sort of not a session, but I asked you on the channel, and then a few of you chimed in. And you had some questions that you wanted. Well, I didn't get to all of them. So I had someone that didn't necessarily ask a question. What they wanted to know is, what were some of the best stories that we had? So I said, you know what, Colin? We'll have some time on the show this Sunday night. I'm going to give you a couple of stories, so I'm going to weave those in between sort of the fabric and texture of the show tonight, and also, there are some games of the year. You know, those old point spreads that you guys like to talk about so much. Not going to dive too deep. In fact, the piece of paper is over here separate from my normal stack, but I got some lines that I want to put out there for you, not necessarily to tell you where to wager your shekels or to tell you to do that period, but I do want to tell you what those lines mean and where... Odds makers may be showing you their hand just a little bit. We're happy to have you here. If you haven't already subscribed to the channel, click the bell for notifications. Subscribe to the Late Kick Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us one of those five-star reviews and a comment. We would greatly appreciate that. So I want to get started with this tonight. I was sort of looking over some of your comments the other night in the video, and I saw something that really I meant to touch on the other night, but I didn't. So I'm going to do it now. Nick Saban did not make a change on his coaching staff at the coordinator positions. Now elsewhere he did, but Nick Saban ends up in 2020 going into this upcoming season with the same pair of coordinators that he had last year. Steve Sarkeesian is his offensive coordinator. And how about this? Pete Golding, still the defensive coordinator as the dust has settled there in the off season. Nick Saban... In other words, did not end up having to make moves that he normally has to. You could argue to me he wanted to. You know, he just couldn't quite get it to work. He couldn't find a suitable candidate out there to replace. I know what the rumors were in the offseason, guys. But bottom line is he still has the same two there that he had last year. I want you to remember 2019 with me. It ended of course with Alabama falling to Auburn in the Iron Bowl 48-45. They go to beat Michigan in the bowl game, but the regular season ends on a sour note. Defense at various points last year looked about as bad as it's looked at any point under Nick Saban. And everyone with a source in and around Tuscaloosa told you, "Oh, Golding's out of here, man. Pete Golding, defense coordinator there, Pete Golding's going to be gone." I mean, Pete, he might as well pack his bags. He's going to be gone. I'm not even gonna tell you that I didn't believe that cause I kind of believe that he was gonna be gone as well. He's not. Again, you could tell me whatever reason led to that. You could tell me that, well Saban tried to get a golden job elsewhere and it didn't happen. He doesn't just like to fire people. Well, I don't necessarily have that confirmed, nor do you. So here's what we do know. Pete Golding is still there, but I don't want to go back to 2019. I want to go back to 2017 to set the proper context for why Alabama may be in a pretty advantageous position right now, even above and beyond what they normally have in terms of advantage, just because of the roster advantage that they have. Go back with me to 2017. You remember this. Jeremy Pruitt was the defensive coordinator there. They won a national championship. Pruitt, of course, moves on to Tennessee. What did Saban do? Well, he promotes from within guy by the name of Taj Lupoy, superstar on the recruiting trail, completely in over his head as a defensive coordinator. In fact, people up to and including Nick Saban himself realized that a few weeks into the season, and so it was a Chinese fire drill behind the scenes for Alabama that year. That's something that pretty much everyone close to that program does know. In fact, Pete Golding was already involved in some of the play-calling aspects, a game-day aspect role that normally a defensive coordinator would hold midway through the 2018 season. LaPoi's out of there after the 2018 season. We've had two coordinator changes in two years now. Insert Pete Golding for the 2019 season. Now, a lot of folks, when they tell you this story, they just wanna fast forward to the very end. Well, we can't do that. We need context. Remember, Bama fans specifically, I want you to remember how much you were growing tired of changes in the coaching staff every single year. You weren't the only ones who felt that way. Nick Saban felt that way. And so he put together a staff going into the 2019 season, into last year. He felt great about it. His staff felt great about it. They felt that they had an energy and a continuity there that remember what the stories behind the scenes were. They didn't have a season before and they had a lot of internal dissension. And so it was time to hit the reset button and let's get a group in there that we think will gel and coalesce and they'll be around. The core of these guys will be around a few years. Well, that was the goal and still is the goal. Problem was then the off season before the 2019 season happened you remember all these names? I'm going to read you a list of names, okay? Some have played at Alabama. Some have never played at Alabama. I'm going to tell you what they all have in common. Dylan Moses, you know that name. Josh McMillan, you know that name. Vandarius Cowan, a lot of you may not know that name. Nicobe Dean, you know him from playing at Georgia. Henry Toa, you know him from playing at Tennessee. My point is, in 2018, whether it was because Moses, McMillan, and Cowan were healthy at that point or because Alabama was thought to be the leader in the driver's seat in the recruitments of N'Kobe Dean and Henry Toa it looked like all of those guys were going to be on the roster for Bama the next year. As it turns out, they don't land Toa Toa. They don't land Nicobe Dean. Vandarius Cowan has transferred out of there for disciplinary reasons. They lose Dylan Moses to injury. They lose Josh McMillan to injury. Their linebacking core is as gutted as gutted gets. It looks terrible from the communication aspects to people getting in the proper positions to miss tackles and poor angles during games. They notably missed 25 tackles in the game against LSU. You could say, well, LSU's got some really great athletes. They make a lot of folks miss. 25 times for Alabama, there's a little bit something more going on there than just, than just LSU being elite. So then we get to the end of the year and you got two camps that form. The overwhelming majority is in the camp of, hey, results are results. Golden's got to be gone. And then you got a relatively smaller camp over here that says, who? I mean, pick the pick Brent Venable's best defense coordinator in the country. Who would have been able to deal with the rash of injuries that Alabama had? Well, again, we arrive back to present day. Nick Saban did not make a move at defensive coordinator. And believe it or not, he had the power to. So now Alabama gets ready a couple of weeks ago to enter spring, and no one was really talking about the fact that they had staff continuity. It's only a headline when they don't have guys returning. It's really only a big headline when Alabama has to replace five or six coaches. No one really talks about when they return both of their coordinators, but I'm gonna talk about it because guess what happened? all of a sudden you get something called a coronavirus that comes down the pipe and they take spring ball from you. And while this guy on your screen right now, Nick Saban, has both of his coordinators, he's not having to worry about installing a new offense or installing aspects of a new defense, everyone around him's having to. LSU brought in a new defensive coordinator, Auburn's got a new OC, both the schools in Mississippi have new staffs completely, so does the folks in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Georgia's got a new offensive coordinator and there sits Nick Saban same coordinators he had last year. You're not talking about it right now. I think you will be talking about it come August when finally we get some actual football that's gonna be played a few weeks down the road and you got schools out there trying to install systems and then you got Alabama over there. They still got a pretty good roster, guys. And they got a really good quarterback that's the incumbent and a potential superstar that if he comes in and beats him out, you won't have any doubt about either in Bryce Young. But isn't it funny? How all of a sudden, because of factors that no one could have foreseen coming, it could be that Nick Saban not making the moves that everyone expected him to make and wanted him to make could be in a situation where more of the same ends up being a really, really, really good thing. Pete Golding. I I was asking some folks today, actually, about Pete Golding. Some folks really in the know around the Alabama program And every time, and this just goes back to reputation, every time that you find someone that comes to this sort of fork in the road in their own mind of what do I think about this or that, every one of them, I'm talking about folks in the NFL, I'm talking about folks in media, I'm talking about folks in player personnel positions, they fall back on that same thing. And that same thing with Alabama is, well, uh, Saban wanted him. So if Nick Saban wants him, if he sees enough in him, then that's got to count for something, right? Yes. Yes, it does. All right, before we move on, speaking about LSU there, I told you I was just going to mix some of these stories in. This one is, it's not fun at all, but it's fun to remember. You know, I'll just lay it out. Those of you who watched uh, Late Kick back when I was in Columbus, I think I told this story a couple of times, but it always bears repeating. The year, I believe, was 2016. LSU at Auburn. It was a crazy couple of weeks because the week after that, we would have been in Athens, Georgia, where Tennessee went walk-off. Josh Dobbs, I believe it was, to Juwan Jennings, Butch Jones about tears ACL celebrating. So a couple of weeks span, I saw that happen. The week before that, you remember how the LSU-Auburn game ended? I'm down in a corner end zone where it looks like LSU, on a heave, ends up winning the football game. Looks like they just went walk-off touchdown. Then all of a sudden, everyone's eyes go up to the monitor because Auburn's got, like, if you ever watch Monday Night Raw, they had Titantron back in the day. Auburn's got one times like 50. They got a huge video board there. So everyone can see a crystal clear replay. And then they put that clock on there, and you see triple zeros before the ball is snapped. And you've got LSU. They're celebrating because, I mean, this is... In some cases, for Les Miles, potentially a career-saving. And for LSU, a season-saving win. And then the replay happens. And then they come back from replay. I can't even hear on the field. It's so loud. And they overturn the call. So I got to see one team celebrate a walk-off win and then heartbreak, devastation. And then on the other side, you see the celebration unfold. It was thought and whispered and rumored going into that game. It was a must-win for Les Miles to keep his job. So Les Miles goes from winning the game... To losing the game. Now, I knew what was happening behind the scenes with LSU, so I didn't follow Auburn. Normally, I follow the team that wins the game. If I have an interest in a a vested interest in both, I'll follow the team that wins the game. Well, that night, I hung around the team that lost the game for obvious reasons. So I walk up the tunnel there at Jordan Harris Stadium, really close. You got to go single file. That's about how wide the tunnel is walking back to the visitor's locker room. And so everyone's walking back up that runway there with their head down. It's dark because the game ended after sundown. And so Joe Oliva, who was the athletic director at the time, did a very poor job at LSU, but he was the athletic director there at the time. He was up the ramp. A number of dignitaries were up the ramp. Uh, Les Miles' wife had been brought down on the field, so she was up the ramp. And so what happens a lot of times if you've ever hung around after a game long enough, you'll see it. Coaches, they'll go to their press conference, but if you're the road coach, a lot of times you'll come right back out on the field once the stadium's emptied and you'll film your coach's show that gets distributed to local television stations that air it at different points during the week. So Les Miles had to film his coach's show. You are contractually obligated to do that. And I walked back out on the field. I knew he was about to come back down. So he comes back down and there is there are these black wrought iron gates, the hedges and wrought iron gates that surround the sidelines of Jordan Hare Stadium. So I just leaned on it. They had his tripod set up there. They were waiting for him to come out. So Les Miles sort of shuffles his feet back out onto the field and he's standing there as they're getting him mic'd and set up, white balance and focus and everything. He's just staring off in the distance. And he's, his eyes were as white as my shirt is right now. And his wife was standing way over here, probably about 20 yards away and she looked physically ill. She was, she was lean. she was like doubled over on the wrought iron gate, and she couldn't look at him because she knew, and he knew, that really he had just lost his job. It had all but been announced, and at that moment, all I could think about was how folks watch professional athletes or professional coaches, and they'll say, when tough times arise, oh, it doesn't matter. I'd love to be in those tough situations if you paid me that many millions of dollars a year. And basically the insinuation is the human emotion doesn't hit them like it does me. You know, I'm working 40 hours a week and I'm barely making ends meet, but since they make seven figures a year, life is different for them. And I can tell you right now, in that moment, Less Miles' wife nor Less Miles could have cared any less how many zeros were going to be in the... uh, He was about to get a buyout, guys. So uh, how many zeros were going to be on the end of his buyout? Because the truth of it is most coaches live well within their means. They don't have enough time to spend their money anyway. Their wives may, but they don't. They don't live these extravagant lives. They don't really care necessarily about the money. They care about the position. They care about having ascended to the top of the sport. And when someone takes them and tells them, you're no longer good enough to hold one of these positions, sometimes you'll get back there. More times than not, you won't. So what we were witnessing that night was a guy who was being told that his spot had been taken and possibly, you know, to this day, Les Miles, he's the head coach of Kansas right now, but Kansas is not LSU. Kansas is in the middle of the Big 12, and I pull for less miles as much as anyone, but that night, that was tough to watch. And that was something that I looked around, and I realized no one else was on the field. So we told that story down in Columbus. I was gonna share it with you because we got some time in the off season. I got one coming up. I got another one coming up. I asked Colin, should I tell this one? Uh, We got another point to get to first, but there was a time in 2015, year before that, uh, that involved Lane Kiffin. And some stuff, again, that you get to see, one of the benefits, one of the perks of covering this sport is you get to see some stuff, normally after games, that maybe you don't get to see necessarily if you bought a ticket. And I've been in both seats, trust me. And so I'll, I'll tell you that story in a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on What's in Your Podcast queue. And guess what? I'm not going to talk about uh, his stop that he made there, but I am going to talk about a few other programs here. Simple question. Is anyone ready to take control in the state of Florida? Any of the major in-state powers, I use that term with varying degrees of relativity right now, because there's not a whole lot of power going on. Admittedly, University of Florida has things very much in line to regain their footing for an extended period of time. They finished top what were they, number six last year in the final poll, back-to-back double-digit win seasons. I know the resume. Florida, by 10 miles, is in the best position right now if we're going to put the blank out there and put someone's name in it. Florida is, by 10 miles, the closest to being able to assume that. But I want to pause on Florida and just ask you a question. Are you in the parity crowd? Are you someone who longs for parity in the sport of college football? If, I mean, I think most of you are. If you're in that crowd that craves parity. that craves more than four or five teams being there at the end every single year, and it seems like it's the same helmet stickers there at the end of every year, you need to focus on the state of Florida. You need to see someone take control in Florida. Because right now, neither Florida State nor Miami have kept up their end of the deal, and it's allowed Clemson in large part to run away with the ACC. And Florida, Miami, and Florida State combined, not being able to recruit at a powerhouse level in their state, has allowed Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State and Clemson and other programs to come and raid the most fruitful state west of the Mississippi or east of the Mississippi when it comes to recruiting in America. And so what would happen? Let's just toss around the idea for a second. What would happen if one of these programs regained peak form? Much less two of them. Let's just say one. But there's no reason why more than one can't here. Florida is the closest. The roster is better than everyone else right now in the state of Florida. The staff, I think, is excellent on a Saturday. I think they were average when they put it together initially from a recruiting standpoint. I think they've elevated to good now They need to be better than good, but I think they're better as a recruiting staff than they were. But then there are other aspects here that you look at. They have a head start. Dan Mullen has a head start on what you have at Florida State right now. We're going to touch on that in a second with Mike Norvell and also what you have at Miami. Because to be honest, I don't really know what you have at either of those programs. So yeah, Florida is clearly in a better position than everyone else here. With Miami, I have no clue. Said this to Colin. Colin's our director, by the way. I mention his name all the time. Someone asked me the other day, "Who's Colin?" He's a lo- he's a lovely young man, lovely young man, and he's sitting two walls away from me right here. So I asked Colin, "What well, in the world's Miami?" And we kind of not in an agreement. No one knows what Miami is. Uh, last year, I thought they blew a golden opportunity. What happened was. Florida tried to gift-wrapped the opening game of the season. You remember they played that week zero game in Orlando. We were there. It was like 115 degrees, and it was a turnover fest, and Miami had every opportunity to win the game, and they didn't win the game. Okay, well, that's fine, because Florida is a power from the SEC. It's not going to kill your season to lose to them. But then North Carolina, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, FIU, Duke, shut out by Louisiana Tech in the bowl game, they ended up losing seven games. Quarterback play was bad. Offensive line play was not very good at all. Uh, It could be even worse this year. They're in a bad place with their offensive line right now. Now, the one potential answer that we have and I say potential cause, even you guys in Coral Gables don't fully know yet, is yes, Derek King comes in from Houston. So maybe there's an answer at quarterback. But again, we're trying to install a new system offensively with Rhett Lashley coming in at Miami. Spring gets taken from us. Don't know when off-season workouts will commence. Are we going to have to install and also get ready to open a season? Are we going to be in any position to capitalize if maybe we have a fortuitous path schedule-wise this year? No one knows. There's so many unknowns with Miami right now. I thought they had a really good opportunity last year, even with the loss to Florida, to open the year. And they couldn't get it done. Now, with Florida State, they're in a terrible spot, but also in a great spot. I'm going to tell you why they're in a terrible spot, and this is not unique to them. They just picked the worst time to hire a new coach. I think they hired the right new head coach after a disastrous hire in Willie Taggart. More on that in just a second. Mike Norvell's the right guy. I have a lot of confidence that he'll end up getting the job done there. I think he'll... Maybe not with the full staff that he has right now. Maybe, you know, there will be a process to gradually overturning over two, three, four year period, his staff to where eventually he builds a really, really powerhouse recruiting staff. I think that'll happen with Mike Norvell. The problem is it's the same way at the Mississippi schools, Arkansas, anyone who brought in a new head coach, you couldn't have planned on not having spring, but yet you don't have spring. And so there was a huge culture issue at Florida State. Most of the time there is. Not everybody gets to do what Kirby Smart did and inherit a Lamborghini with a couple of flat tires. Like most of the time when you inherit a name brand program, it's because things inside are rotten. So things inside the Florida program had completely rotted and the exterior showed. I mean, it's not like their record on Saturdays left anything to the imagination, but he comes in and you're all about culture, 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 and now spring's canceled. Now everyone's off campus. Now you can't talk to folks. And so it's just the worst of the worst, um, relatively speaking, You know, from a football standpoint. But here's what's great about it. What's great about it is, at least the people who made the terrible decision hiring Willie Taggart as the head coach of Florida State. I don't have a problem with Taggart as a coach. As the head coach of Florida State, allowing him to learn on your dime was inexcusable. Always was. I think a lot of folks rooted for him. Uh, I have no problem rooting for him, but at the same time, I mean, a bad hire is a bad hire. At least they pulled the trigger quickly instead of letting it play out two or three more years, and then all of a sudden you're much further down a dead-end road than they currently are. So I think Mike Norvell will get it turned around in time, but our guys over at Knowles247.com, they've done a three-part podcast series on Willie Taggart, fascinating. I intended to listen to like 10 minutes of it, and I've now listened to about two and a half of the three episodes. And it's called On the Bench, by the way. If you guys want to listen to the podcast, it's called the On the Bench podcast. But they did a three-parter on just where everything went wrong with Willie Taggart. You cannot overstate enough the incompetence and the total cluster that was FSU football under Willie Taggart. From a behind the scenes aspect, that program lacked the organization that it would take to win most high school regions. And I don't say that sarcastically. I say that very, very seriously. Go listen. Let's go read up or listen. If the results on the field weren't evidence enough, fascinating how some people end up in positions of power, but it always goes back to something I talk about a lot I don't think I've talked about it since we've done the show at 24-7, but believe me, I will. There is a different formula, getting hired in college football as a head coach versus getting hired in the NFL. In the NFL, you have to convince a lot of football people to hire you. You cannot get hired. As a head coach, You know, barring the 1% of organizations out there over the span of history that have been incompetent themselves, most of the time, if you're getting hired as a head coach in the NFL, X's and O's not even a question organizational and leadership. They're not questions. You have cut your teeth, you've paid your dues, and there is nothing that is doubted about your pedigree and the ability to lead other men, lead an organization, and coach and teach the game. In college, you're trying to convince administrators and boosters and fundraisers, the crowd that you have to win over, a lot of good salesmen could win over. And that's what Willie Taggart did. And then he stepped to the podium on his introductory press conference, and he won a lot of people over the same way because he's really good at selling himself. Problem is, you don't win selling. You don't sell wins. You gotta earn wins, and they couldn't earn wins. So out with Willie Taggart, in with Mike Norvell, and we arrive back at the same question. Is anyone ready to take over the state of Florida? And my answer is, if there is someone, it'll be the University of Florida, but like I've told you with Florida. Until they beat Georgia, this is all a moot point. I was, in fact, I'm going to look at these in a second. Some of these lines of the year, there are a lot of people in the odds-making community that have a lot of confidence in Florida this year. I think those same odds-makers may have a little hesitation with Georgia, not from a roster standpoint, but I think from a quarterback standpoint, new offense, you know, there's a remains-to-be-seen kind of collective mentality out there around Georgia. But if someone can do it, my first guess would be Florida, but think about what it would mean. If if someone like Miami, someone like Florida State, and I always mention those two because they're in geographically the best position by 10 miles to theoretically compete. I mean, that's the way this was supposed to work when they set the conference up the way it is. If you get someone or two programs ideally that all of a sudden sort of meet their standard historically in Florida State and or Miami, and then you also got Florida humming in the SEC, not only do you have a more balanced SEC Eastern division? And not only do you have a more balanced or at least challenging path for the Clemson Tigers year in and year out, but also it's not as easy for Ohio State and Alabama and Georgia to just go into Florida because right now, guys, those teams are out recruiting the in-state teams. Ohio State versus Florida State heads up for a kid in Florida right now. Buckeyes are winning that thing at least six out of 10 times. Alabama versus Florida right now. Bama's winning those battles a majority of the time. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Clemson versus Miami. Right now, Clemson's got the upper hand in the state of Florida for in-state kids. So if you want a little more parity in the sport, not only does Miami winning more recruiting battles help them against Clemson, but it also, if Clemson makes it into the playoffs or they're you know in a blind resume test at the end of the year, they don't look like a borderline AFC East team. Maybe you have shaved off the bottom 20% of their roster from an elite standpoint that they are able to accumulate now. Bama's able to accumulate it now. I'm not telling you that those programs couldn't go elsewhere and get talent, but I am telling you, if you're able to suck up a little bit more of your own in-state talent, it brings a few more people potentially to the head table and maybe just a touch over here and just a touch over here, it pulls some of these teams that have started to really pull away from the sport back down to the head table. More people at the head table equals more parity equals a lot of you are happier. So I'm just saying, watch the state of Florida, because that's where the action is. To me, that's where the action is more so than any other state right now. Another thing that I wanted to tell you about, so I told you about Les Miles getting fired. Someone was talking Lane Kiffin the other night, and so I wanted to tell you this one too. If you just joined us, by the way, what we're doing is not very structured. Got a couple of more points to make, but uh, someone the other night, once we had already gone off the air in our Q&A, they asked, just for some stories, some behind the scenes stories, road stories, and we got a million of them. So, I mean, we can do this the entire summer as long as we're allowed in the building. Fingers crossed, they hadn't barred us. I mean, our, our keys still work tonight, so we're still here. Um, 2015, how well do you remember that year? 2015, fascinating. Or was it 2016? I, you know, I think it was 2016, actually. So uh, 2016, you know, that was the same year that the last mile story happened. 2016, I got a lot of stories from, for whatever reason. The situation is this. Lane Kiffin is the offensive coordinator at Alabama. They're in the SEC Championship game against Florida. Uh, I'm at the game, covering the game. So, the talk leading up to that week was Lane Kiffin is in communication with everywhere from LSU because remember Ed Orgeron was interim there and it was looking like he was going to get the permanent head coach tag and who is he going to hire as his offensive coordinator? Is he going to get Lane Kiffin as his offensive coordinator? Week goes on. There are unsubstantiated reports that it's a done deal after the SEC championship game. He's going to go, he being Lane Kiffin, is going to go to LSU. But then all of a sudden, guy named Tom Herman, I think, leaves Houston. We got an opening at Houston. That'd be a really good G5 job for Lane Kiffin to get. Oh, Here are some reports. It's Wednesday, it's Thursday. Reports, Lane Kiffin, Houston. So Kiffin's name is linked to like 10 jobs. That's Jimmy Sexton, his agent, doing his job. More on Sexton in about uh, 20 seconds. So game ends. Lane Kiffin has given his word that he is not gonna speak to anyone until after the SEC championship game. Now I can confirm as much as I can right now that Lane Kiffin kept his word. And here's how I can confirm it for you. He literally meant, I'm not going to talk to anyone until the SEC championship game ends. So I find Kiffin after the game. I decide to follow him. He, he, Kiffin, when, when Alabama would win games, I've been on the field with him winning SEC championships, national championships. It was always funny. Lane Kiffin would never be on the stage and he'd never be around the stage. Lane Kiffin would walk about 30 or 40 yards away back where like you know media would hang out. And when I say media, I mean the ones who aren't up on the riser taking the pictures, me in other words i just kind of lurk like a, a loiterer. Well, Kiffin would do the same thing. And so he would just kind of stand back and he'd watch, just kind of like a fan. he just watch. So he did that. And then crowd sort of starts to disperse. The confetti has fallen down. I follow Lane Kiffin down the tunnel. In the tunnel, I kid you not, is his agent, Jimmy Sexton, who is holding a cell phone with his hand over the speaker. The only thing I don't know is who was on the call, but he handed that phone to Lane Kiffin as soon as Kiffin walked down the tunnel. And Kiffin took a call and right then and there began negotiating whatever he was negotiating. Now, as you and I know, it turns out that he did not go to LSU. It turns out he did not go to Houston. It turns out he ended up going to Florida Atlantic. I don't know that FAU was on the phone, but I do know that there was a phone call waiting for him as soon as he stepped off The field in the Georgia Dome. Rest in peace, Georgia Dome, by the way. I know a lot of you like Mercedes Benz Stadium. It's not a bad facility. I do miss the Georgia Dome, but I digress. So then there's this other aspect to this whole thing. Lane Kiffin has an agent named Jimmy Sexton. Half the world at this level of college football has the same agent, and that includes his boss at the time, Nick Saban. So Nick Saban walks by them, and it's as if they don't even know each other. Saban just Walks into the locker room, goes to do his press availability, comes out of his press conference, walks back past, and I remember thinking, only in this world would this be considered normal. But yet, there it was. Now, I'm not foolish enough to believe Saban didn't already know what was going on. Uh, In fact, I would lead you to believe he very much did know what was going on, or maybe he just couldn't have cared less. Because, as you recall, Kevin goes on to be the offensive coordinator for the semifinal and then is fired. This is not a story. This is not some 30 for 30 in fantasy world. This really happened. Like Alabama won a semifinal game, fired their offensive coordinator the week of a national championship game lead up, and then almost won a national championship. Like that kind of stuff happens in college football and it happened with Alabama. But that was interesting to see. There's a lot of Lane Kiffin stories, obviously. Don't have time for them all. I'll tell you what I do have time for though. Um, I gotta be careful here. So I'm not going to name the Entity. But UnEntity has released some games of the year. So I'm going to read them to you. I'm just going to read you a few. You can find them, uh, search Twitter if you want to. Again, got to be careful naming names here. <clears throat> Excuse me again, I'm not supposed to lick my finger. So I want you to tell me what you think these lines mean. Now, I know what they actually mean. These are games you could go bet on right now if you wanted to. But I want you to tell me what you gather from this. Georgia plays Alabama in week three in the regular season this year, by the way. Georgia plays in Tuscaloosa. Alabama's favored by seven in that game right now on the futures market. Alabama minus seven. Texas A&M plays at Alabama this year. Alabama's favored by nine. What did I just tell you? I already gave you, if you understand simple math, I just gave you the hypothetical line between Georgia and Texas A&M on a neutral field. Georgia at Bama, Bama minus seven, A&M at Bama, Bama minus nine, what they've already told you in their power ratings here is they've only got Georgia as two points better than Texas A&M. Now that tells me either one of two things, or maybe both things are true. Either odds makers are a little bit higher on Texas A&M than maybe Joe Schmo would be, or maybe they're a little bit lower on Georgia than Joe Schmo would be. Let's dig in a little bit further. I think both are true. I think odds makers are a few points higher on Texas A&M right now, and maybe a couple of points lower on Georgia. Texas A&M at Auburn, Auburn only favored by three. You shave off the standard. I think they give Auburn three to three and a half for home field. That's a virtual toss up. I mean, they're telling you right now, A&M Auburn, pretty much equal power ratings wise as we sit in March. Uh, A&M at Bama, I already gave you, but I want to go back to Georgia for a second. How about Georgia versus Florida? I think this number was put out there initially at Georgia minus one and a half. And I think it got bet down to around pick. So this is gonna float. It may have floated since I came on air. Point being, a lot of folks are either confident in Florida or maybe a little bit shaky on Georgia or maybe both. Uh, It's clear that they have Alabama as their power rated number one team in the SEC West. Alabama plays at LSU this year. Alabama's opened as a slight favorite round two to three points at LSU. And Auburn at Alabama, Iron Bowl, at the end of the year. Bama as a seven-point favorite there. Another thing that we can decide from this is uh, the Georgia over Texas A&M, I told you, but also Auburn-Georgia. That game's in Athens uh, much earlier in the year this year than previous years. I think that was Georgia minus three and a half or Georgia minus four. So there are a lot of situations here where, hey, if you believe in Jamie Newman, if you believe in either the offensive changes that are going to happen at Georgia, or you believe like I do, that they'll have one of, if not the best defenses in the country. Maybe you look at these and say, huh, or well, there's some money to be made there. I would also, not that these mean anything when toe meets leather, but you know, these guys typically have a better grasp of the game than, you know, your uncle would. Texas A&M. I mean, you're going into Auburn, three-point dog, home field, basically decides there. Uh, Bama, You know how hard it is to go into Alabama and be less than a double-digit underdog? And you are? That would excite me. Of course, at this point, any talk of football season happening would excite me. So uh, those are some lines. um, Again, we got all off-season to talk about that. But I do want to tell you this. There was a phone call I got from my buddy last night who's in this business, I was telling Colin about this before the show, and he referred to this as the dead season. Now that's an old industry term that is used to refer to just the summer period. And I don't believe in it, never have. And I know even though we just got spring ball canceled, I don't believe that there is a dead season. Here's what I mean. If you don't have it in you to come up with, we do two shows a week right now, Colin, these are like 30, 40 minute shows. If you can't come up with 30, 40 minutes of original content, what are you in the content creation business for? Those are our simple philosophies, So it's not a dead season for us. So we're gonna keep doing shows and we're gonna try to put content out there that's entertaining for you. Maybe it's some behind the scenes stuff like we did tonight. Uh, maybe it's uh, wagering centric. And I only taught gambling on the show. I don't wanna make it a gambling show, but what I noticed is I just gave out point spreads. I didn't tell you who to bet on. A lot of you will never and have never gambled a cent on college football, but you are fascinated by the odds making process. I am too. And so we discuss it from time to time, because I just think it gives you a different angle and a different window into the sport, whether you decide to bet on it or not. We always advise you not to. But if you do, that's on you. If you don't, though, I think it's still fascinating to know that right now, if this game were played this week, uh, Texas A&M would be a field goal underdog at Auburn. Like You wouldn't have known that otherwise, so that's fun, but we have different ways we can go, but I will tell you this, every comment you leave on this channel, and if you haven't subscribed on the YouTube channel, go ahead and do it, uh, podcast, leave us a comment there, I read every one of them, I respond to a lot of them. The tweets, at Late Kick Josh, I see everything you send me, but most importantly, I listen to what you send me. So if you've got ideas on where you want us to go that previously we haven't gone, let me know your show. It's not our show. We just deliver it to you. So wherever you are tonight, we appreciate you joining us. We plan to be back here in some shape, form, or fashion Thursday. Until then, stay safe, stay clean, wash those hands. For Colin, for Aaron, I'm Josh. This has been The Late Kick. Have a great week, everyone.